Last week, uh, we started back into Revelation here, Revelation 11. And what we had going on were the two witnesses. Thank you, Dustin. What we had going on were the two witnesses. And that's just, now we're getting to the middle point of the tribulation period right here. You can see the two witnesses and the 144,000. We talked about their ministry and then their death. But then, amazingly, their resurrection. And we remember this point, please. Anytime we're talking about judgment in the book of Revelation, and there's a lot of judgment in the book of Revelation, there's always grace. God always gives grace in the midst of judgment. So we have these two witnesses and these 144,000 that are out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ while this judgment is going on. And if you weren't with us last week, go back and read the first part of Revelation 11. It's a lot of fun about the two witnesses. Or grab a copy of the CD or listen to it online. You'll be blessed. It's just fascinating to see their ministry and what happens. But we left off then at the end of chapter, excuse me, verse 14, and we're in the middle of the trumpet judgments here. Now, remember these judgments. We started with the seal judgments, then it goes to the trumpet judgments, then it goes to the bowl judgments. And they keep getting progressively worse. They keep getting progressively more difficult. And we're finishing the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet will take us into the bowl judgments then, and that will start here in Revelation 15. So with that being said, let's talk about the seventh trumpet, verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is, is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, And those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So we're into the seventh trumpet here. Now, there's a couple things we need to point out with this as we get ready to go into this. This seventh trumpet is really starting to take a turn now in the book of Revelation. And you can look at the wording that's going to be going on now. We're talking about the Lord reigning. We're talking about God and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God. This is a really interesting phrase. And I'd like to share this with you because sometimes this Bible, you have to remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. We're reading it in English. It reads a little bit differently in the Greek. In the Greek, this is a term that says this is a certainty. It hasn't happened yet, but it's so certain it's going to happen. Now, I love that. This has not happened. If you take a look at this, and we're looking at verse 15, the kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. They're talking with such certainty. There's other examples of this in the Bible. There's a great example where Paul refers to you and I as already being glorified. I don't know about you. I look in the mirror. I don't look glorified. I look at you guys. I don't see glorified either. I'm just letting you know that. It goes both ways. But when you read it in the Bible, it is such a certain fact. God says you're already glorified. You're already sanctified. You're already saved. We sit down here on earth and we wonder and we worry and we fret. God says it's already a done deal. Well, how can it be a done deal? Because it's so certain it's going to happen that it's already there. And that comes to some of these words. This word in verse 17, we give thanks, O Lord God Almighty. What an amazing word. It's only used ten times in the Bible. Nine of them are in the book of Revelation. And it literally means he holds all things. So when you see that word Almighty, it says, we give you thanks, O Lord God. It literally is saying, who holds all things. Now, when you really start to get that verse, it changes your entire life. God holds all things. 
Okay, what about the finances that are short? God holds all things. What about the job I need? God holds all things. What about my spiritual struggle? God holds all things. He's almighty. That's what it means. He has everything under control. He is sovereign. The problem is, you don't think he's got everything under control. I don't think he has everything under control. One of my favorite things I love to do to torment my children is to take them and to bend them over the couch where they think they're going to fall off. It's one of those love-hate things, you know what I mean? They love it, but at the same time, they're yelling, stop, I just pretend not to hear. But the point is, they're in my hands. They are not going to fall. But part of the fun is, they don't know that. And this is kind of what happens to us. The problem is, it's not fun for us. We sing that little kid's song, he has the whole world in his hands. He really does. So if you came here tonight and there's something you're struggling with, you're fearful about, you're anxious about, you're worried about, you serve a God who is sovereign. You serve a God who already has it all in his hands. And it's a done certain deal. And that's why in verse 15, they can say, it is your kingdoms, Lord, and you shall reign forever and ever. Even though he's not right this moment, it is such a certain thing that it is. Chew on that. I don't expect you to get that right at this moment, but I want you to take that home. And every time you think of Almighty, he's holding it in his hands. So therefore, for the rest of your life on this earth, when something pops up, you serve God Almighty, who's already holding it in his hands. He's going to take care of it. What a blessing that is. Okay, now what happens as well because of what's going on here? Well, first thing you see in verse 18, we get rewarded. I like getting rewarded. What else do you see going on? People are getting judged in verse 18. See, here's the thing about being rewarded and being judged. It's really interesting. The Bible uses the same term, and I put some verses down there for you. We will be eternally rewarded for serving God. Now, please don't think that this turns into some type of pride in all of eternity. What it turns into is, Lord, you have done so much for me. I just want to serve you. That's what it means. We're rewarded with salvation. We're rewarded with heaven. We're rewarded with grace and mercy. And it's everlasting. The flip side to that is judgment. Take a look at our verses here in Matthew 25, 41. Judgment is everlasting. I had somebody ask me one time, how's that fair? How's that fair that decisions that we make on this earth, that maybe we only live 20 years, Bible says you get about 70 years. I've done a lot of funerals. The oldest person who ever did a funeral for is 99 So almost 100 years. How is that fair that they are going to be judged for eternity when really their actions only last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years? The problem is, once again, we're thinking about it from this perspective. You really are an internal being. This tent, this body, only lasts about 70 years. You're going to live on forever. And when once again, when that starts to sink in, you start realizing, wait a second. This is so utterly temporary down here. The problem is that it seems huge. It seems huge right now. Right now, in the first week of January, we forget in six months it's going to be 100 degrees and you're going to be complaining. You forget that. Okay? Here's the thing. Right now, we are so much in this fleshly tent, we forget, oh, wait a second. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. Jesus said it's already done. The tomb is empty. He's almighty. Everything is in his hands. But what do I have to get worked up about? I'm just going to focus on eternity. I'm going to focus on seeing souls get saved. I'm going to focus on representing Jesus Christ and all I do and say. And once I get that focus and that mindset, everything else in this world just starts to disappear. 
Because I'm really an eternal being living in this tent for about 70 years. So don't let the things get to you. In fact, the Bible calls you pilgrims. The Bible calls you just passing by on this earth. This is not our home. Realize that, accept that, then all of a sudden there's a peace to this world and this existence because you're looking towards eternity rather than the here and now. Now, we're going to stop right there because verse 19 is a little bit something different. Any quick questions, comments about anything here thus far with verses uh, 15 through 18 on the seventh trumpet? Okay. Verse 19 is fun. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. Keep your hand here in Revelation uh, 11. Go with me to Exodus 19, please. Now, I hear from so many people how difficult the Old Testament is. Because when they go read the Old Testament, it doesn't make sense. When you read the Old Testament, just look for Jesus. And when you start looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, all of a sudden things start to make sense. You start seeing Christ in it. And here's a great example of this. We read this passage here in Revelation 11, and we hear about the ark, and we hear about lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquakes. Okay, what does it all mean? Well, let's take a look here. Exodus 19. Go ahead and pick it up in verse 16 with me. Came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now think about this. Think about what we're just reading about. We're reading about the seventh trumpet. We're reading about thunderings and lightnings, etc., This is the way God kind of does things. See, what's going on here in Exodus 19 is Israel's getting ready to receive the law. Moses goes up on the mountain with Joshua, and Moses actually receives the law from God himself. So God comes down on this mountain, and it's this mountain of holiness. And you get a brief glimpse into God's holiness. Verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completed, completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. See, if you were reading this 2,000 years ago and you were a good Jew, you would read this passage and you immediately would go back to, this is really a picture of God's presence. See, we like to think that there's this God of the Old Testament, there's this God of the New Testament, and they're kind of like different personalities. They're the exact same. They really are. The Bible says, I'm the Lord your God. I do not change. Aren't you thankful you serve a God that does not change? He doesn't wake up one day and just say, you know what, I like James for a while and now I don't. He's out. Love the Lord for His grace and mercy and consistency. So the way we saw God in the Old Testament, Exodus 19, is thunders, lightnings, earthquakes. Guess what's happening in Revelation 11? Thunders, lightnings, earthquakes, because it's a picture of God's presence and His holy might and power. Now, when you know that, that's your dad. That's not scary. But if you don't know Him, this is scary. Revelation is scary. You know, so often we talk about salvation by grace and mercy, but the book of Jude also says this, some are saved by fear of hell. I was one of those guys that was saved by fear of hell. I remember distinctly being in the White House by the bank. Jim gave an altar call. He talked about the reality of hell. I said, I don't want to go to hell. That sounds scary, and I got saved. And then once I got saved, I really started to understand the great depth of God's grace, love, and mercy. But the fear of hell was what drove me to the cross. See, If you see this, 
If you know the Lord, you're cheering this on. This is amazing. Thunders, lightnings, earthquakes, God's holy presence, amen. If you're not saved, this is like one of the scariest things that you could ever imagine. That's why the people trembled. What are they seeing in Exodus? They're seeing God's presence because he's about to give them the law. What are we seeing in Revelation 11? We're seeing the ark of his covenant and the temple of God opened in heaven. See, this is something we don't think about a lot either. When you study out the temple in the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us they were just a shadow of things already in heaven. So when we talk about the table of showbread and the ark of covenant, the menorah, the altar, those are all symbolic pictures on earth of really what's going on up in heaven. So once again, when you go read the Old Testament law, look for Jesus. So when you read about the menorah and it's all being lit, you're like, wait a second. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Makes sense now. When you read about the table of showbread and that they have two loaves there, you stop and you think, wait a second. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. When you see the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwell, you stop and realize, wait a second. The Bible says, now I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of it starts to make sense. And so what happens in Revelation eleven nineteen? you get a tiny little glimpse up into heaven where we already see a shadow of it on this earth, but you see God's presence and what he's doing. My point is very simple. If this is what's going on up in heaven and this is God's power, what am I worried about down here? God Almighty who holds all things in his hands, it's already a done deal that we're glorified and loved and sanctified. And then verse 19 His lightning, noises, thunderings, earthquake, great hail. Man, that's just the power of my dad. I'm not afraid of that. In fact, that brings me peace because that's the God I serve. And whatever I'm facing in northwest Ohio pales in comparison to that. So really the seventh trumpet is very eye-opening, literally into heaven, but also eye-opening to us because we get a glimpse into God's power and that's the God you serve. And whatever you're going to face this week pales in comparison to who God really is. Any final questions, comments here about the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 before we get into Revelation 12? Okay. All right, I love Revelation 12. It is one chapter that basically covers about 2,000 years of history, and it does it so eloquently. Verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, this is a beautiful picture of what's going on here. Now, let's break this down. First off, who's the woman? The woman is Israel. We're going to come back and explain all this in a second. The dragon is Satan. The child is Jesus. So these are the things that we know. Now, good question to ask is, how do we know this? Please remember, whenever you're sitting under any teaching, if they're going to make a point, make sure they got some scripture to back this up. Because if not, you're just going to take and accept it. Always back things up with scripture. So, we see the woman. She's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head is a garland of 12 stars. Okay, God's trying to tell us who this person is. 12 stars represents the 12 tribes of Israel. When you see the sun and the moon, that should take you back to the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. And if you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, he had a dream. And what was his dream? 
that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to him. So we know this is all a picture of Israel. So the woman is Israel. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of false cults like to claim this woman as their own. Catholic Church likes to tell you this is Mary. It does not line up with Scripture. This woman is Israel. Now, who's the dread dragon? Well, the dread dragon is Satan. How do we know that? Jump ahead to verse 9. Always let the Bible be its own commentary. So the great dragon was cast out, serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Alrighty, so no argument about that. So, dragon is Satan. Who's the child? Well, the child is Jesus. And how do we know it's Jesus? Because you see the birth happening and you see Satan trying to destroy this. Satan always has tried to destroy anything that God loves. Satan hates the Jews. And why does Satan hate the Jews? Because God loves the Jews. Jesus is in his earthly ministry was always being attacked by Satan. It was just always very behind the scenes. You didn't see it. Why were there all these storms suddenly popping up in the middle of the sea? Probably satanically inspired to bring Christ down. How many times did the crowds want to kill him? Probably satanically inspired. What happened when Jesus was born? Herod said, I'm going to go kill all the kids. Satanically inspired. This is nothing new. And so what you have here is this dragon wanting to devour Christ, to destroy him. So the birth happens. Now the whole idea of the seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his head, we're going to get to that next week. You're going to see a tie-in with that with the Antichrist. And so that happens next week that we get into that a little bit more. That's all symbolic of many different things. Now we've got a couple other points here we need to kind of make those as we go through this. Take a look at verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That phrase, stars of heaven, usually refers to angels. So this is where we get the idea that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Now, how many angels are there? Well, the Bible says angels are innumerable to count. So whatever one-third of innumerable is, that's how many he took with him, okay? So he took a third of them, threw them to the earth, and look, the dragon's ready to destroy. But what happens in verse 5? The child is born. And how do we know this child is a picture of Jesus? Rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a prophecy concerning Christ, that that's what he will do. And the child was caught up to God in his throne. Jesus finished his earthly ministry, and he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1. And then what happens? The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. Please remember in Bible prophecy, 1,260 days is the equivalent of 42 months or three and a half years. Please remember the Bible uses a 360-day calendar. So this shows that Israel, right here, divinely protected for the last half of the tribulation. See, what happens is this. Like I said, you're getting 2,000 years of history very quickly. The enemy actually, and um, I was about to use the word empowers, is not the right word that I want to use. He possesses the Antichrist. And what happens, and then we have to put all this together, and if you weren't with us last week, I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit here. But what you have here is you have the rise of the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is building power. In the middle of the tribulation, there's something called the abomination of desolation. And this is what we talked about last week, that there will be a temple that is rebuilt. There is no temple now. And we had last week, we put up the wailing wall picture, and we put, put up the dome of the ark of the Muslim's place, and we talked about how those two things right there need to be reconciled. The Antichrist will come in. I use this term lightly, so please don't yell at me. Miraculously... Find a way to bring peace to the Middle East, which no one has ever been able to do yet. A temple will be rebuilt. He will then take power politically, economically, 
and spiritually, and this is all coming yet in the book of Revelation, and then what happens is he's going to ride some military victories to the point of this abomination of desolation, where he goes into the temple, stops the sacrifices, sits in the temple as God, and says, here I am as God, worship me. At that point, the Jews' eyes are opened, and they realize this is not our Messiah, this is the Antichrist, and then they flee to the wilderness for the last three and a half years, and God divinely protects them. Now, I know that's a lot of information, so bear with me here. Jump ahead to verse uh, 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with them. Boy, there's a lot of information there. Let's have some fun with this. Verse 7, Michael. Michael's one of the archangels. Remember, there's only three angels mentioned in the Bible. Michael, Gabriel, and Satan, or Lucifer. If you hear any other names of any other angels, that's not from the Bible. Reject that. Michael is the archangel. Seems to have a special role in protecting Israel. He's mentioned in the book of Jude. He's mentioned in the book of Daniel. And they're fighting. What does it look like when angels fight? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know. I don't know if this is spiritual. Because right now, the Bible says we battle spiritually. I don't know if this is actual physical. I really honestly don't know. And the Bible doesn't really give us any hints. And you know why? Because the Bible says it doesn't matter to you. (laughs) Please remember this. If the Bible is silent on an issue, because God says you don't need to know. Now, Don and I run into this all the time. We have seven kids at our house right now. So whatever room I'm in, there's a kid. No matter where I go, there's just kids, and they just keep coming. And so if Dawn and I are trying to have a conversation, and so one of the kids walks in, they hear a bit and piece of it, they want to know what's going on. Because they obviously feel like they have a right to know since they pay the bills and live in the house, I guess. You don't have to know. I don't have to know. And when you reach that point spiritually, you know how freeing that is? Somebody comes up and says, James, what's it like when Michael and Lucifer fight? I don't know. Well, I read this guy online. He says this is what it's like. Well, he doesn't know either because no one knows. And it's okay. Focus on who Jesus is and go tell people that. Sure, it's fun to speculate. Sure, it's fun to talk about. I don't know. When I was a young believer, I thought they were fighting. I just envisioned Michael and I just envisioned these two armies coming at each other and just battling it out. I really don't know. So... There is going to be this battle. So that's the first thing you see. We're introduced to Michael. I shouldn't say introduced, but we're introduced to him here in the book of Revelation. We see the battle going on. Please note, Satan's not going to win. Verse 8, he does not prevail. And there's not found a place for them in heaven any longer. This bothers some people. Satan still has access to heaven. We know this from numerous references in the Bible. Job chapter 1 makes it perfectly clear. If you ever want a fun thing, don't turn there now, but if you ever want a fun thing, tonight go home and read Job 1 and you see a conversation between God and Lucifer. And it's fascinating to get a tiny little glimpse into that. We know that Lucifer's job, and I use that term lightly up in heaven, is to constantly make accusations against the body of Christ. We know in Zechariah chapter 3, in Zechariah chapter 3, God introduces us to Zerubbabel and Joshua, two guys that if you remember our studies through Nehemiah and Ezra, we talked about them a lot. And it says that Satan's up in heaven constantly making accusations against him. So that means right now, we know what the enemy is doing. He's up in heaven attacking the body of Christ. What is he saying? Don't know for sure. We can hint from the Bible. Saying, those are really your kids, God? That's really what you want them to do? 
You're saying those people are saved and look at how they act. You're really saying that those people really love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And look at how they're acting and looking what they're doing. So this is the heavenly scene that we have. Satan makes accusations to God the Father saying, this is your, your kids, this is your bride. And you know what the Bible says Jesus does? The Bible says in 1 John that he is our advocate, which is a Greek term, means he's our defense attorney. And Jesus stands beside God and says, got it covered. My blood covers that sin. Got it covered. And this is the ongoing scene up in heaven. Satan casting accusations against us to God the Father and Jesus just standing there saying, I got it covered through my blood. Don't you, aren't you glad that you have somebody up in heaven on your behalf? That's what Jesus Christ does. So it reaches a point where God says, we're done with this. He casts them out. Verse 9 has one of the best descriptions of who Satan is. So the great dragon, why is it a dragon? Because dragon represents power, dragon represents authority, was cast out the serpent of old. That should take you right back to Genesis chapter 3, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, called the devil and Satan. Let's talk about these words. The word devil means slanderer or accuser. Satan means adversary. But that sums up his name pretty good. He's a slanderer and accuser. And he's your adversary who deceives the whole world. Please remember what Jesus said. I believe it was in John chapter 8 where it says that Satan is the father of lies and in him is no truth at all. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with them. How many? A third of them. So Satan is now kicked out of heaven for good. No more allowed to have access. No more allowed to go up there. And what happens is this. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. We've already talked about that. And they overcome him. Overcame him, excuse me, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Please notice verse 12, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, he knows that he has a short time. One commentator has put it this way, Satan comes down to earth, he realizes he can't get your soul, so now he's going to go for your body, the commentator said. He just wants to cause destruction. And if you really look at the last part of the tribulation period, when these bold judgments are pouring out, oh, it's awful. It's awful. I've used this term in other Wednesday nights, it's, and I don't ever say it lightly. It is literally a hell on earth. I mean, think about this. Satan is cast out. All of his demons are cast out. We've already read about how the demons are coming out of the abyss of the pit. We've read all this. It literally is this hellish scene on earth. And this is what's happening at the end of the tribulation period. Now, we're going to stop right there, catch up with any questions anybody may have, and then we're going to come back and keep uh, talking about this. So any quick questions, comments about anything here in 7 through 12 of what we talked about? Marv. Yeah, it's, it, what it is, it's, it's 360. You've got to remember, if you go out and study calendars... Uh, there's Gregorian calendars, there's Jewish calendars, there's Islamic calendars, there's Chinese calendars. We are just used to living in America, this concept of a 365-day year, and we're just used to then adding a leap year every four years. Once again, don't waste a lot of time on it because focus on spiritual matters. But if you just go to Wikipedia and start looking up calendars, you will see constantly different nations have different calendars. And there are actually still some groups of people that use a completely different calendar. So if you go to them and say it's January 3rd, they have no idea what you're talking about. It's just the majority of the world uses our calendar. So there's just different calendars in the world, and the Jewish calendar had 360 days and had different names for months. 
Yeah, you'd have a little bit. You got to remember, over in Israel, they don't have the uh, seasons necessarily. Well, you got to remember, they don't have July and January, but it stays pretty constant there. It really does. If you go back and look at it, and plus, you got to remember too, their idea of calendar and seasons is different than ours. When you read the Bible, you have the latter rains and the former rains. That's what they kind of use theirs. And also, the Jews base their calendar on the moon, not the sun. So it's a little bit different ballgame than what we have. That's why a few years ago when everybody's making a big deal about the four blood moons is because that was more of a Jewish type thing. We base our calendar on sunrise to sunset. From a Jewish perspective, you base your day on from sunset to sunrise and the moon. So it actually works out not that bad. But seriously, don't waste time. Just go to Wikipedia and look up calendars. So there you go. Jeff. Yeah, theirs is the... All the other bad people were worshiping the moon. Well, see, now, now we're getting into... The first part, I understand what you're talking about. Yes, definitely the calendar is based on the lunar cycle of the moon. But now this is where we have to stop for a second here and, and kind of talk about this. So often when we see things in the Bible, we see something and we say something like you just said there too, Jeff, that the Jews did this because the pagan cultures were doing other things. That could be true, and I don't want to say that it's not true. Obviously, if you look over in Egypt, they had like Ra, the sun god. That was their main powerful god. The Jews kind of went the opposite here. But you've got to remember, the question that comes up is this. Did the Jews make it that way because the world was making it about the sun, or did the world make it about the sun because the Jews made it about the moon? What I notice a lot is so often when God does something, the world just does the complete, utter opposite of it. And so if we go back to Adam and Eve and we say if the baseline was this, this idea of a lunar calendar, it wouldn't surprise me if pagan worlds decided to say, well, they're going to do the moon, we're going to do the sun. And so when you have the Tower of Babel happen in the book of uh, Genesis and the world spreads out and everybody gets their own culture now and their own language, it wouldn't surprise me in any way whatsoever if a group says, well, you know, back there we used to do it around the moon and these cultures say, well, you know what, we're doing it around the sun now. So I understand what you're saying. It's just hard for us to be able to determine, you know, the classic chicken or the egg. But what it really, to me, comes down to, if God ordained this from the beginning, he's got the baseline of what to do it on. It wouldn't surprise me if the world went the opposite way, because the world likes to do the opposite of what God says. But good question. Anybody else have anything here? Okay, so any other questions about the enemy? I want to make sure we understand what's going on. Still have access. I think I put in the notes here. Yes, I did. A couple quick points. Satan still has access to heaven. Job 1, Zechariah 3 talks about that. Access is eventually denied. Satan's cast out. And he comes down to earth to cause havoc. So that's what's going on right here. We're good? All right, let's finish up chapter 12. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, this is where we're at. Okay? So persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He's going after Israel. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. We've already talked about that earlier. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So what happens now is this. 
The Jews realize who the Antichrist is, and he's awful, and he's bad, and he's evil, and it's satanic. They flee. They run to the wilderness. The Antichrist realizes he's, the Jews are getting away. So satanically empowered, and satanically inspired, satanically possessed, he sends his armies after the Jews to destroy them. But God miraculously steps in and takes care of this army and totally devours them. And for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, Israel is divinely protected by God, which is a miracle of itself when you think of everything that's going on. Now, you can stop right now and you can look at verses 15, 16 and say, does he really do a flood? Is it really the earth opening its mouth and swallowing them up? Once again, we don't know. The Bible uses actual floods. We've seen that before. The Bible actually swallows people up with its mouth. If you remember correctly in the Old Testament, Korah's rebellion. There's a group of people that went to Moses and said, we think we should lead. And so Moses had this great idea. He goes, okay, this is what we'll do. Tomorrow morning you line up with your people, I'll line up with my people, and let's just pray this prayer. Whoever the earth opens up and swallows, they're the ones that God doesn't want. And so they pray the prayer, and guess what happens? The earth opens up and swallows Korah's people, and Moses said, I win. So the Lord has done that in the past. Some people look at this and say, well, obviously the serpent is symbolic, possibly of Satan. So wouldn't it also be symbolic that the flood could be symbolic of an army and the earth opening itself as symbolic of God's divine protection? Once again, I don't know. We're not going to get into what it is or could be. We just know that they are divinely protected by the Lord during this time. I tell you, I I just read a great article, and, and it really is so true. They said, if you really look at it, the world is always worried about Israel. You know, specifically Jerusalem. And they talk about how, you know, they put out travel warnings, advisories, and really is it safe to go to Israel? And they said, if you look at it from a biblical standpoint, if the world is really falling apart, you want to be in Israel. That's the safest place to be. Because when you see all the Jews flee, just go with them. (laughs) Because when they go and they're safe, you're going to be safe too. Now, go through the rapture first, get saved now, okay? Let's not worry about that. But the point is, truly speaking, Israel, who's surrounded by about a billion Muslims that want to destroy them, is really the most divinely protected place in the entire world. Isn't that fascinating when you think about it? God is not going to let Israel get destroyed. God's going to divinely protect them for three and a half years. And while the world is literally falling apart, Israel's going to be safe in the wilderness with the Lord. There's a great reference And it's really kind of a strange reference where the Antichrist is trying to take over the world. And he gets upset because it's in Daniel chapter 11. And it says that like Ammon, Moab, he can't conquer them. Some people believe maybe that's the area that they're going to. That there's going to be this spot over there that God divinely protects. The Antichrist has got everything else, but he can't have them. And that's the God you serve. That's the God that loves the Jews. That's why the Bible tells us in Psalms to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I don't know what your prayer list looks like, but on your prayer list, put Israel down. Those are God's people, and we want to pray for them. We want to bless them. And so, therefore, we want to pray for them and realize that the Lord's hand is upon the Jews. The Jews aren't going anywhere. They're going to be divinely protected, and I absolutely love that. So what happens now is verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So verse 17, the dragon says, I can't take out Israel. So what does he do in verse 17? He goes after whatever believers are left here on the earth. Now, the Bible makes it clear that many people will get saved during the tribulation. Amen to that. But it's not going to be easy in any way whatsoever. If you're a believer during the tribulation, 
you are living under the reign of literally a satanically inspired man who controls the world politically, economically, and religiously, which we'll get to the religious point here in a little bit, it's going to be difficult. And you're going to have a serpent, a Satan, a devil that's going to say, I want your life. And that's what he does. He takes his anger and his rage, and he goes after whatever believers are here on the earth in verse 17, while Israel is being divinely protected. Now, this sets us up real good. We're running out of time, so I'm not going to be able to get into it tonight. Finally, in Revelation 13, we're introduced to who the Antichrist is. So we've been talking about him now for weeks. We've been talking about who he is and what he's going to do. Revelation 13 is the chapter that introduces us to the Antichrist and introduces us to the false prophet. If you take a look at your sheets there for Revelation 12 and 13, this is what we get to go through next week, and I hope you'll definitely be blessed by that as well. We're going to get back to the judgments here in Revelation 15 and 16. There's a few chapters where God kind of plays catch-up on some of the things that's going on in heaven. Any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? All right, a lot of stuff. And it's really easy to go home and either say, number one, I didn't get any of this. This is the first study in Revelation I've ever been in, and I'm completely lost. I understand that. That's why we try to have this stuff up to help you there. Don't focus on end times. Focus on spreading the gospel. But realizing that Bible wants you to have an understanding of end times. Just realize that. Okay, number two, as you go through this, it's easy to stop and say, okay, I got the woman, I got the wilderness, the 12 stars, I'm really confused. Then just remember this, the God you serve is God Almighty who holds everything in his hands. That, if that's what you're going to take home tonight, then I'm, I'm great with that. That you serve a God who literally has it in his hands and he says, I'm going to take care of this. And it's such a for sure thing that it's in his mind it's already happened. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he's taking care of you. And what a beautiful picture that is. And when we hear about the lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and noises, that doesn't scare us because that's just my dad. And I don't have to worry about anything because that's how powerful my father is. And so when I understand that, then that gives me so much peace with whatever I'm facing right now. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not saved, and you hear about the thunderings and the lightnings and the hails and the earthquake, the Bible makes it very clear. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But when you know him personally, there's nothing to be scared about. And I just hope tonight that you go home realizing I serve God Almighty, who's got everything under control, and with that type of peace, I can go out and really represent that peace to the world. So when the world is falling apart, I can stop and say, I'm not. How can you be so peaceful? Because I know who's got everything under control, and that's sovereign God. Anybody else got any final points here before we close up? Hey, would you guys stand with me as we pray? Lord, it is so much fun just to get together and talk about you. So thankful for everybody you brought out on a very cold, icy night. Uh, Lord, bless them. And for those that couldn't make it with us, just keep them safe in all ways and all things. But Lord, for right here, right now, we serve God Almighty and we love you. Lord, help us to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you and whatever trial or tribulation we're facing to know that you're the God that is there to take care of us. Thank you for this. In your name, amen. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. If you've got anything you want to pray about, I'll hang around up here and we can pray. All right, you guys take care.